Revelation 19, the title of our study here today, A Marriage Made in Heaven. And you know, as I was preparing this message, I was thinking, there's nothing like the perspective of a child to lighten the mood. You can ask a child what they think about it, pretty much anything, and often they will give you their unvarnished and sometimes hilarious opinion. For instance, have you ever wondered what do kids think about marriage and weddings? Well, here are some true stories. Listen, five-year-old Susie was telling her mother the story of Snow White, which was her favorite Disney movie. And she told her mommy, she said, at the end, Prince Charming kisses Snow White and raises her back to life. And then she said, Mommy, do you know what happened after that? Mommy said, yes, Susie. They live happily ever after. And Susie said, no, they got married. (laughs) Another little girl was attending a wedding. And she asked, she said, Mommy, why do brides always wear white? The mommy explained, she said, well, the white represents happiness. And this is the happiest day of the bride's life. Well, about halfway through the ceremony, the little girl uh, nudged her mommy again, and she whispered, she said, Mommy, if the bride wears white because they're happy, why does the groom wear black? (laughs) And I don't know how that mother answered, but uh, sometimes the kids can ask you a zinger. How about this? Billy, a curious seven-year-old boy, went to his first wedding and had lots of questions. At the reception, his mother was explaining to him why there were two cakes. There was a cake for the bride and a cake for the groom. And Billy said, well, Mom, what's the matter? Haven't they learned to share yet? (laughs) And you know, some of them don't learn to share 40 years into the marriage. Then there was Robert, 12 years old. He was asked to be an usher at his big sister's wedding. And so he was quickly coached in wedding protocol his dad explained to young Robert when you are seating people son here's how you do it first you ask them are you a guest of the bride are you a guest of the groom and then you escort them to the appropriate side of the church so you can imagine the father's surprise when the seating began and he overheard Robert offer his arm to the first guest and say madam whose side are you on How about this? A Sunday school teacher of fourth and fifth graders asked her class, Children, what does the Bible say about being married? One boy raised his hand and said, Well, I think Jesus said something like, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. (laughs) So, think about that, future newlyweds. You know, weddings today have become big business, haven't they? They've become expensive spectacles. According to one source that I read this week, the average American wedding now today costs over $25,000. And as you know, I've got two girls now, uh, so I better start saving. But uh, in 2018, the world's attention was captivated by another royal wedding. Prince Harry and Meghan Merkel and the British media reported that all of that pomp and pageantry cost... 32 million British pounds, or the equivalent of 43 
million. Now, as grand as a royal wedding might be, it pales in comparison to the marriage supper of the Lamb that the Bible foretells in Revelation chapter 19. You talk about a match made in heaven. Literally, that's what it's going to be when at the end of the tribulation period, the bride of Christ is united with Jesus in a ceremony that will have no equal. In fact, this is probably one of the most glorious events foretold in the Scriptures, and friend, we ought to be excited about it. I love what Adrian Rogers said in one of his books writing about this. He said, quote, We are living so close to the second coming of Jesus that I can hear the tinkling of the silverware as the angels are setting the table for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Wow, what a thought. Now, as we look at this text today, Revelation 19, in the first six verses, I want you to see, number one, the celebration in heaven. Now, this wedding begins with several stanzas of praise to God. In fact, the word that you're going to see repeated over and over throughout this passage is hallelujah. It's used four times in these first six verses, and they express the exuberant joy of God's people as God's plan of salvation is being completed. Friend, if you don't like praise and worship, you won't much like heaven. Because as we study the book of Revelation, we see often and many times throughout the book, God's people gathered around the throne with the angels and the living creatures and the 24 elders and so on, praising the Lamb of God. In fact, this is the seventh time in the book of Revelation that we see God's people celebrating and rejoicing over God's actions. Now, the angels, the living creatures, the saints of God are praising for three specific reasons in this passage. The first one is this. They are praising for the retribution of Christ. Look at what verse 1 says. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. And once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. So, here we have heaven rejoicing because Jesus Christ has brought justice to the wicked Babylonian system that has promoted evil and poisoned the world. We saw that in the previous chapters, 17 and 18, as the religious and then the economic spheres of the Antichrist empire are both brought to ruin. And now that Babylon is a smoldering city, there'll be no more false religion, no more exploitation, no more greed, no more thievery, no more persecution, and no more evil done by the Antichrist. And so the saints of all ages who have longed and waited for God to defeat His enemies, that day has now finally arrived, and the saints of God say, Thank you, Lord. Praise you for your judgments are righteous and true. Now, if that sounds strange to you, let me draw a parallel from our world. One of the most important days in World War II happened on August the 25th, 1944. That was just a few weeks after the successful D-Day invasion. And the Allied troops came from Normandy inland to France, 
And the city of Paris was liberated on that August the 25th by French and U.S. troops. Now you need to remember that Paris had been occupied for four grueling years by German forces. And when the liberators came, when the Americans and the French rolled into town, and the Germans had to tuck tail and retreat, oh, there was Parisians that spilled out into the streets, we're told. They were uh, ticker tape parades on that day. There was speeches and all-night parties and legendary feasts. Mothers even held out their babies so that American troops could kiss them on the cheek. You see, evil had been defeated and the city of lights had been spared from annihilation. And friend, if you can understand how that would bring gladness to the hearts of the people there in Paris that day, then you can understand the elation that is going to break out in heaven when Jesus begins the process of taking back over the earth to His own. When He defeats the Antichrist and the false prophet, when He gives the devil a black eye, and the beginning of the end for the forces of darkness be, happens, friend, there's going to be praising like you've never heard ring through the halls of heaven. There'll be praise for the retribution of Christ. I'm already getting excited about it. Friend, this passage gets even better. There's praise for the redeemed of Christ. Not only for the retribution, but for the redeemed of Christ. Look at what verse 4 says. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God. All you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. Now, we've seen these 24 elders before. We've seen the four living creatures show up several times through the book of Revelation. In fact, this is the sixth time to be exact. We saw them in chapter 4, verse 10. Twice in chapter 5, verse 8 and verse 14. Chapter 7, verse 11. Uh, chapter 11, verse 16. And here... Revelation 19.4 And every time you see this group, the 24 elders, the four living creatures, you know what they're doing? They are worshiping the Lord. Now, we've just had a great time of praise and worship. You know, it's interesting to me as I study people and as I watch people, it's interesting how the Spirit of God moves among His people and different people respond differently in worship situations. Some people raise their hands. Some people are shouters. And I've seen them jump the aisles, uh, jump the pews and run the aisles. Uh, some folk uh, can just sit in a worship service and the Spirit moves and all they do is weep. And it's a beautiful thing to see the different expressions of worship. And Lord, uh, you know that when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of somebody... Friend, they can move and say and do things and come out of their shell in some surprising ways. You know, some folk in churches today are bashful. Uh, some are reserved. Some are just lost. Uh, some have been baptized in lemon juice. But I'm telling you, on this day in heaven, I think you'll be surprised at what you might say and do, what might come out of your mouth, what your feet and hands might do when this praise chorus breaks out in heaven. Notice the phrases here, verse 4. He says, Amen and Hallelujah. Get used to that. We're going to be singing that in glory. This is the language of the redeemed. Let's say it today. Amen. Hallelujah. This is the language of God's people. Did you know, 
I did some study this week. No matter the culture, no matter where the church is worshiping in the world, amen and hallelujah are the same in every language. English, Spanish, Japanese, Russian, Swahili. It's the same everywhere you go on God's green earth. I've been to Honduras and been praising the Lord with the folks down there in those little humble churches. And uh, they know amen and they know hallelujah. I heard about two Christians, uh, two men who were from different countries and they were on a ship that was going across the Atlantic. And it just so happened that as they were walking on the deck one evening, these men bumped into each other and they noticed that each man was carrying a Bible. And they concluded at that moment that they were Christian brothers. They tried to communicate, but of course there was a language barrier in their way. They didn't know what to say. And so one brother just pointed to his Bible and then pointed to his heart and then pointed up and the other brother said, Hallelujah! And the other brother said, Amen! And they had a worship service right there on the deck of that ship. Years ago in Wales, there was a circuit-riding Methodist preacher by the name of Billy Bray. Boy, he looks like a rough-and-tumble fella. He was uh, an old-time shouter, you might say. Many of the people who would hear him preach were often jarred by fits of praise that would break out as he began to preach. Well, the story goes that he was invited to go to a little country church, and a few days into this revival meeting, uh, Billy Bray started to hear complaints from the congregation that he was too loud, he ought to be more reserved, and there was too much shouting from the pulpit. Can you imagine that? Well, that's when Billy Bray got up on about the third or fourth night of that revival, and he informed the people this way. He said, I'm told that many of you don't like my shouting, but I want you to know that I can't help it. God has been so good to me. You see, I used to be a drunkard, but now I'm saved. And with every step I take, it's mercy and grace. And then he began to march around the auditorium, that little church there. And every time he put down his right foot, he'd say, Hallelujah. And every time he put down his left foot, he'd say, Amen. And he marched around that church, Hallelujah, Amen, Hallelujah, Amen. Until the people got it that this was a shouting, praising preacher. Friend, I've got news for you. This is the quietest world we're ever going to live in. Because heaven is going to be a happy place. It's going to be a noisy place. A place of celebration for the redeemed of Christ. For the retribution of Christ. And then thirdly, look here in verse 6. We'll also be praising for the reign of Christ. Notice what verse 6 says. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Friend, I want you to know that when I read that verse in my study this week, I wanted to stand up and raise my hands and have a Hallelujah, praise God chorus, just me and the Holy Spirit alone with the Word of God. You see, God is sovereign. And this verse reminds us that Christ has permitted evil men and fallen angels to do their worst. But now at this point in verse 6, the time has come for the reign of Christ to begin and for the will of God to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I love what John Phillips wrote about this passage. He said, Every being in the universe, inspired by a love of their benevolent King, from the humblest saint, 
to the mightiest of the cherubim, joins in the swelling chorus. It reverberates, rolls, echoes, and swells across the heavenly hills until it is a deafening waterfall of sound. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Friend, that's why worship is so important. That's why coming to church and gathering with God's people to hear God's Word and sing the praises of the Lord is so important because worship reminds us that God is in control. That Jesus is sitting on the throne, interceding for us at the right hand, that heaven is our home. That this world isn't the last. That we don't say goodbye forever at the end of a grave. But friend, that heaven is our home. There's a great homecoming. And Jesus is ruling, reigning, and returning soon, friend. What a great thing to be a child of God today. Praise for the reign of Christ. That's the celebration in heaven. What a wonderful thing that is. Then number two, I want you to see this morning, not only the celebration in heaven, but the ceremony in heaven. Remember, this is a marriage supper. And so, in order to really understand the significance of this event, we need to first know the process of an ancient Jewish wedding. So there's some background information I want to give you here. There were three main stages to a wedding in Jesus' day. The first step was what you might call betrothal. Now in ancient times, marriages were arranged by the father. He would select a bride for his son. And when the two sets of parents had agreed on the marriage, a dowry would be paid by the groom, and then the couple would gather in the presence of a rabbi, and they would exchange vows, and they would be legally engaged or betrothed. And then... This was something different about their culture. The groom would then leave, and he would return back to his father's house, and he would then begin to build a dwelling attached to the father's house for he and the bride to begin their new life. Now, does that sound familiar to you? Where have you heard that kind of language before? Well, if you have, you've been reading in John 14, because that's where we see it. The night before Jesus' death, At the Last Supper, as he gathered around the table with his disciples, listen to the promise that he gave in John 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Listen to this. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, you may be also. Notice the model of the Jewish wedding that's being used there. Jesus is about to leave the earth and go into heaven. And friend, he's been there for 2,000 years preparing a place for us. It must be beautiful. It must be majestic. It must be awesome that he's been preparing that place for us. And friend, heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. Betrothal. Then the second stage of a Jewish wedding was consummation. And in this stage, the groom would make his way to the home of the bride... And he would claim her as his wife in an elaborate parade procession through the streets. And the bride would be alerted of the coming of the groom because the best man would go ahead and announce, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. In fact, this custom became the basis of the parable of the ten virgins that Jesus tells in Matthew 25 in the first 13 verses. And so then, the newlyweds would then proceed back to the Father's 
house. So you can see uh, how this parallels in prophecy. Because at the rapture, there's going to be an angelic announcement. A trumpet will be blown. A cry will be given announcing that for the bride to prepare herself and come up and meet Jesus Christ in the air. So there's betrothal. There's consummation. And then the last stage in a Jewish wedding is celebration. And the happy couple would have a feast with all the friends, with all the family members who'd been invited. And typically, these feasts could go on for a week. In fact, the lavishness of the feast depended on the wealth of the Father. So what does that say about us if we're the bride of Christ and the celebration is based on the riches of heaven? Friend, you talk about a party, you talk about a celebration, a feast that will have no equal because heaven doesn't have any shortages. Amen? So the pattern of the Jewish wedding, you can see how it's repeated in the order of the end times events. And prophetically, you can see where we are in the overall scheme of God's salvation program. Right now, we're in that betrothal engagement stage. The promise has been given. Jesus has left to go prepare the place. Right now, the bride is being prepared. The Holy Spirit has been sent out across the ages and through the world to touch the hearts of people who would believe in Jesus. I love what Peter says about this. He says, we love Him even though we have not seen Him. Just like the Jewish wedding. And one day the rapture will come and it will be a surprise to the world. The bride of Christ will go to be at the Father's house with the Son forever and ever. You know, the rapture is going to be a sudden event. In the moment of a twinkling of an eye, the Bible says, it will be a, a secret event. No one knows the day or the hour. And it will be a selective event. Only the bride of Christ. So you see how that parallels the wedding of the first century Jewish people as well. Now John notes three important details in this text about the marriage supper. Let's notice them very quickly. In verse 7 and 8, he talks about the garb of the bride. The garb. Look at what he says in verse 7. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And so we see here that the church is purchased, it's prepared, it's pure for her wedding day. Christ paid the dowry when uh, He went to the cross and He shed His blood and gave His life. As she is washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. Every sin, every stain, every mark of unrighteousness has been removed. The imputed righteousness of Christ has been put upon the bride. And many commentators believe that there's another aspect of this that we need to be sensitive to. When the Bible says there uh, that she's making herself ready, that that has to deal with the judgment seat of Christ. You say, what is that? That's a judgment that will happen in heaven just for the church, just for the believers, not to determine salvation, that's been determined at the cross, but to determine the level of reward and the enjoyment of blessing. And so, verse 8, when it was, says that the final linen is the righteous deeds of the saints, many believe that that's a reference or an allusion to the bride of Christ being judged there at the judgment seat. And in this scenario, you might say that the judgment seat of Christ precedes the marriage ceremony as the bride is prepared and purified and ready 
for eternity. Listen to what David Jeremiah wrote about this. He said, quote, The wedding gown will be made by the master designer. And it symbolizes the righteous deeds done by the bride on earth through the power of the Holy Spirit. Believers will stand before Christ and have their works tested before they are fit to be presented to Him as a bride. The lavishness of the wedding gown will be determined by the quality of our lives, motivations of our hearts, and sincere service done for Christ after salvation. So that's the garb of the bride. And then, look at this, the text goes on to talk about in verse 9, the guests of honor. The guests of honor, verse 9, And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, and he said to me, these are the true words of God. Now, friend, if you're taking note, this is one of the seven Beatitudes that's mentioned in the book of Revelation. Now, one of the questions that it raises is, well, who are the invited guests? Well, we know it's not the church. The church is the bride. The bride doesn't invite herself to her own wedding. So it appears that the guests here mentioned refer to all of the Old Testament saints, those in the Old Testament period before the church who believed in faith, and then also the tribulation saints, those who were on the earth during the tribulation who died in, in, uh, for their faith. In other words, all the redeemed who are not part of the church age proper, the believers before Pentecost, before the church age, and those after the rapture during the tribulation period. And one interesting verse that we might write in the margin there to support this view is John 3, 29. Because in that verse, John the Baptist refers to himself as a friend of the bridegroom. Isn't that interesting? And so hence, one of the invited guests. And so the marriage supper of the Lamb will celebrate all that Christ has done down through the ages of redemptive history. Can you imagine a ceremony there? All the believers in the church age, all the Old Testament saints, David, Moses, Abraham, all the great men and women who walked with God and friend joining the church to celebrate this grand tapestry of salvation that God has been weaving together through the millennia. What a blessing! The guests of honor and the garb of the bride. But then notice this as we finish today. The glory of the groom. The glory of the groom. Verse 10. It's one of the strange verses in the book of Revelation. Look at this. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you, and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the Spirit of prophecy. Now notice what happened here. John was so overwhelmed by the scene of praise and worship and the ceremony that took place that he mistakenly bowed down at the feet of the angel who was giving him this tour. And the angel quickly rebukes John. And he says, don't worship me. All glory, all honor, all praise belongs to Jesus Christ alone. You see, the marriage supper of the Lamb, one thing is going to be different about it that's unlike any other wedding that's here on the earth. And that is that the spotlight 
all the attention, all the glow, all the adoration will not be on the bride. Who will it be on? The groom. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But here's an incredible thing about this wedding. And friend, I've studied this passage before, but this week as I looked at it again with fresh eyes, God showed me something that I had never noticed before. You can teach an old dog new tricks. But when I stumbled across this passage in Luke 12, friend, I almost came unglued. You see, not only is the groom going to be the host, but according to what this verse says, he's going to be the chief servant as well. Look what Luke 12 says, starting in verse 35. He says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from a wedding feast. This is Jesus talking. So that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Listen to this. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service. And have them recline at the table, and he will come and serve them. I don't know how to explain that any other way. It's totally backwards that Jesus, the Savior, my God, who shed his blood for me, it ought to be like John the Baptist when Jesus came to be baptized by him, and John said, I can't baptize you. I'm not even fit to unloosen your sandal. But the Word of God says that Jesus Christ is going to serve us at this marriage supper. Friend, do you understand that? Have you wrapped your mind around that truth? Oh, God. I don't understand it. And on earth, I don't even agree with it. But that's what the Word of God says. Can you imagine something so precious? That Jesus Christ, the one who died for you, bled for you, is going to come and serve you at the table. Oh, my goodness. What a precious Savior we have today. Friend, I don't understand it. I just know that's what the Word of God says. And when I read it, my heart is rending too. Because I ought to be the one on my hands and feet, washing His feet. I ought to be the one girding myself with a towel and say, Lord, what can I do for you? He's going to gird Himself and serve us. What a blessing. You know, in Genesis 24, the Bible says that Abraham sent his servant Eleazar out to find a Gentile bride for his son Isaac. And you know, so too God the Father has sent a messenger into the world, the Holy Spirit, to seek out a bride for Christ. You know, if the bridegroom were to return today, would you be going with him? Or would you be left behind? Let me finish with this story and I close. Ruth Anna Metzger is a professional singer tells a story that illustrates the importance of having an RSVP. 
Several years ago, she was asked to sing at the wedding of a very wealthy man. According to the invitation, the reception was to be held on the two top floors of Seattle's swanky Columbia Tower. She and her husband, Roy, were excited to attend. At the reception, waiters in tuxedos offered luscious hors d'oeuvres and exotic beverages. The bride and the groom approached a beautiful glass and brass staircase that led to the top floor. Someone ceremoniously cut a ribbon draped across the bottom of the stairs, and they announced that the wedding feast was about to begin. Bride and groom ascended the stairs, followed by the guests. At the top of the stairs, a maitre d' with a bound book greeted the guests outside the doors. May I have your name, please, he asked. She said, I'm Ruth Anna Metzger. This is my husband, Roy. He opened his book and he searched through the M's. And he says, ma'am, I'm not finding it. Will you please spell your last name? And she spelled it. After searching through the book, the maitre d' looked up and said, I'm sorry, ma'am, but your name is not written here. And she said, oh, there must be a mistake. I'm the singer for the wedding reception. And the gentleman, the maitre d' said, Ma'am, it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. Without your name in this book, you cannot attend the banquet. And he motioned for the waiter. And he said, Show these people to the elevator, please. The waiter led Ruth, Anna, and Roy to the service elevator, ushered them in, and pushed G for the parking garage. After locating their car and driving several miles in silence, Roy reached over and put his arm around Ruth Anna. And she, he said, Sweetheart, what happened? She said, I realize now. When the invitation arrived, I was so busy, I forgot to RSVP. She said, Surely I didn't need to RSVP. They knew that I was the singer. She said, Ruth Anna started to weep, not only because she had missed the most lavish banquet she'd ever been invited to, but because she suddenly had a small taste of what it would be like someday as people stand before Christ and find out that their names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. What a message. What an illustration. And friend, I offer this invitation now as our musicians are coming have you made your RSVP? Are you a part of the bride of Christ? Has your name been written down? Are you sure? 